Schöner Grüße von City Breaks. Hello and greetings from City Breaks. Welcome to City Breaks Munich, episode 8, in which I'm going to focus on Munich in at the time of World War II. So a little more history about that period. And focusing really on the places in today's Munich where you can find traces of the years 1939 to 1945. Clearly the darkest period of Munich's history, but I do think it's admirable the way the city doesn't try to pretend that it didn't happen. So in the Stadtmuseum, the city museum, there's a permanent exhibition about National Socialism in which no punches are pulled. More about that later, but for the moment I wanted to start the episode by reading to you a little extract from the museum's leaflet. So, quote, Munich is more closely entwined with the history of National Socialism than any other city. In the final days of World War II, Dwight D. Eisenhower, the American general and future president, described it as the cradle of the Nazi beast. It was in Munich that the Nazi party was established in 1919-20 to and the city remained its national headquarters until 1945. It was here that Hitler launched his political career, alongside key figures in the Nazi dictatorship like Himmler and Göring. When the Nazi party seized power in 1933, Munich was proclaimed the capital of German art and the capital of the National Socialist movement. In Munich, the decisions were also taken to build one of the very first concentration camps just outside the city limits in Dachau and to begin the campaign of systematic disenfranchisement and persecution. There are a number of places you can visit in today's Munich which will tell you more about the story of Hitler and his war and I think the most interesting one of the lot is the City Museum, the Münchner Stadtmuseum, whose leaflet I've just been reading from. There's a permanent exhibition there in a separate wing of the museum on Nationalsozialismus in München, so National Socialism in Munich. And it's crammed full of photographs from the time, of film, of realia, things that have been gathered from the city collections, given as private donations, material taken from nearby Dachau, the concentration camp. The rest of the museum is given over to other parts of the history of Munich, so starting in medieval times and coming right up to the present day. But I think it's probably for the National Socialist Exhibition that it's best known. There is one square in today's Munich called Königsplatz, which really was the centre, the focus of Hitler's regime. If you go there today, you'll find a building called the Musikhochschule, so a music college, which in its previous life was known as the Führerbau, so Nazi headquarters, the Führer's building. And opposite that, in a building which today is the Kulturinstitute, so the Cultural Institute, is where the offices were for Hitler's deputies. On Königsplatz 2, that was the place you would find the Brauners House, the Brown House, absolute epicentre of Nazi HQ, which was damaged during the war and torn down afterwards, so it doesn't actually exist anymore. In its place has been built something called the Dokumentationszentrum, Documentation Centre, which is the second site, apart from the City Museum, in Munich, where you can find a lot of information about this terrible period. It's billed today as being a place of learning and remembrance. It's an exhibition centre, really, and some of the permanent exhibition themes are things like exclusion and persecution, why Munich, and one labelled Was hat das mit mir zu tun? What has this got to do with me? That part of the exhibition is 
perhaps even the most important. It's an attempt to link what happened in Munich in 1939 when things went so massively out of control, to link that with the idea that possibly these things could happen again today if we let them. Königsplatz was long linked to the Nazis. It was, for example, the site in 1933 where they carried out their famous burning of books, collecting works by all the authors they regarded as degenerate, all the people they didn't think should be in print, and ceremonially burning them for everyone to see, and making it clear, of course, that these were books that nobody should be reading. Königsplatz was also the site of mass rallies, often held in Munich. So when you see those photos of thousands of people attending a Nazi rally in Munich in the 1930s, you may well be looking at a picture of Königsplatz. And the Führerbau on Königsplatz, so the Führer's building, was the building in which the very infamous 1938 Munich Agreement was signed. As an aside, if you like fiction and you like thrillers, you may enjoy Robert Harris's book Munich, which is all about the Munich Agreement. All the main players are in the book, Hitler and Chamberlain and Mussolini, but the two main characters are a pair of young men who had met a few years earlier at Oxford. There's Hugh Leggett, now a junior member of Her Majesty's Diplomatic Service. He's on the trip to Munich with Chamberlain. And then there's Paul von Hartmann, who was a contemporary of his and a friend when they were students, but who's now a junior member of the German Foreign Ministry. We quite soon learn that von Hartmann is hoping to thwart Hitler, in his attempts to annex parts of Czechoslovakia and start the war. And so it's written as a thriller. Is he going to succeed? I won't spoil the ending for you. But I will read a little section just to whet your appetite. So here is Robert Harris's description of the moment when the agreement is being signed. The group photograph has just been taken and then everybody's going to sit down and watch Hitler and Chamberlain sign the agreement. So it reads like this, quote, Ribbentrop indicated the desk. Hitler went over to it. A young SS adjutant handed him a pair of spectacles. They changed his face in an instant, made him look fussy and pedantic. He peered down at the document. The adjutant gave him a pen. He dipped it into the inkstand, examined the nib, frowned, straightened and pointed irritably. The inkstand was empty. There was an uneasy shifting in the room. Goering rubbed his hands together and laughed. One of the officials pulled out his own fountain pen and gave it to Hitler. Again, he bent forwards and studied the paper carefully, then very quickly scribbled his signature. One aide rolled a curved blotter over the wet ink, then a second lifted away the document, and a third slid another sheet of paper in front of Hitler. He scribbled again. The same procedure was repeated. It went on for several minutes, twenty times in all, a copy of the main agreement for each of the four powers, along with the various annexes and supplementary declarations, the fruit of some of the most creative legal brains in Europe, which had enabled them to slide over matters of contention, postpone them for later haggling, and reach a settlement in less than twelve hours. If you would like a ringside seat at this very important moment of history, then I can recommend Robert Harris's book to you. Anyway, back to Königsplatz. So today, what you'll find there is a monument to all those who suffered and died at the hands of the Nazis. The monument takes the form of a cage in which there is an eternal flame and a plaque commemorating the many different sorts of people who were persecuted by the Nazis, whether for their political beliefs or because of their race, religion, sexual orientation or disability. The inscription in German reads simply Den Opfern der Nationalsozialistischen Gewaltherrschaft which translates as to the victims of national socialist tyranny. 
You certainly can't miss Königsplatz, but another much smaller road that you might miss unless you know where to look is one called Drückebergergasse. It's a little road quite near Odeonsplatz. If you look on a map, it connects Theatinerstrasse to the Residenzstrasse. And it first gained notoriety as a place where the Nazis had put up a memorial. So it's very close to the place where the beer hall putsch failed. And so they put up a memorial plaque to commemorate the people who had died in the attempt of causing the revolution. And it became a place where they liked to hold rallies and ceremonies. There were always SS guards at each end of the road, and it was a requirement that if you passed down it, you had to raise your right hand to them in the Nazi salute. And this little lane, the Drückebergergasse, became a shortcut that you could take so you could bypass the SS guards, and then you wouldn't have to salute them. It became known then, the German name means Schurker's Alley, so it was where you went if you wanted to shirk your duty of paying homage to the Nazis. It was a form of civil disobedience, really, And in memory of it, along this lane now, there's been set a bronze trail in the pavement, which just commemorates the route taken by all these people who wanted to avoid saluting the Nazis. And so if you stand at one end of Drückebergergasse, you can see this long bronze trail, 18 metres long, set into the pavement by a German artist called Bruno Wank. It dates from 1995. Another building left over from the Nazi period is the Haus der Kunst, or House of Art, which was built from 1933, a neoclassical-style building designed by a Nazi architect, Paul Ludwig Trost, to display propaganda art, art which the Nazis regarded as being echt Deutsch, that is, truly German, in other words, anything they approved of, and certainly none of the degenerate art which they forbade. Ironically, today, the building is used for contemporary exhibitions, probably all the stuff for which they wouldn't have approved at all. And if you go and visit, you'll see in the foyer an exhibition of the building's history so you can learn more about the Nazi attitude to culture and to the banning of so-called degenerate art. And the last place which you might like to visit, which I wanted to mention, isn't in Munich at all, in fact. It's near a town called Obersalzburg, a little place called Berchtesgaden, which was the site of the Eagle's Nest, the little hideaway built for Hitler on his 50th birthday. It's been said, in fact, that Obersalzburg was the second seat of Nazi power after Berlin at some points during the war, because Hitler and his generals used to retreat here for a quiet place to have their discussions. Today it too has a Dokumentationszentrum, so a documentation centre, from which you can learn a lot more about the Nazis and their policies, and also, bizarrely, quite a lot about daily life, the way the Nazi elite actually lived their lives when they were staying in this beautiful place. Definitely worth a visit if you want to learn all those things, but also, in fact, because it's such a beautiful centre. Germany's second highest mountain, the Watzmann, is just nearby. It's also where you'll find the Königssee, deemed to be Germany's most photogenic lake, possibly by the people who live there, but anyway. And the whole area is a national park, so a really lovely place for hiking. And you can get an idea of its beauty from the legend that is talked about, under which the angels, who were given the task of distributing the Earth's wonders, were told that they really should hurry up, and this was just when they were flying over Obersalzburg, and they got such a shock that they dropped them all just here. So that concludes my roundup of places you might wish to visit, and I'd like to move on now to talk about a particular group of people, those who suffered the very most under Hitler, and that would be the Jewish community. There were thought just before the war to be about 9,000 Jews living in Munich, 
and it's estimated that by the end of the war there were only 84 left. The history of Jews in Munich goes back centuries and centuries, dating to as early as 1229, when it's known that a Jewish community was living in Munich. They were subject to much of the same persecution as Jews in other parts of Europe, pogroms, being expelled. It's known, for example, that in 1442, one of the Wittelsbach dukes expelled all the Jews from the city and converted their synagogue into a church. It's also known that in the 18th century, the Jewish community re-emerged and the 19th century saw their growth and their opening of several synagogues. One, for example, opened in 1826 in the presence of King Ludwig I. A second one in 1882 on land granted to them by King Ludwig II. And as late as 1931, a third synagogue was just being opened. But as we know, as soon as Hitler came to power in 1933, there was a wave of virulent anti-Semitism, culminating in things like Kristallnacht on November the 9th, 1938. It wasn't specific to Munich, it happened all over Germany, but it certainly happened very badly in Munich. Synagogues were attacked, Jewish shops wrecked, and businesses confiscated. Many Jews at this point tried to leave. Those who didn't manage it were often deported to the concentration camps. The story of one of Munich's best-known Jews, Max Ulfelder, is told in the exhibition at the City Museum. So the Ulfelders were the owners of Munich's best-known department store, which was pillaged, set on fire and almost completely demolished on Reichskristallnacht in 1938. The Ulfelders were taken at first to Dachau, while their business was sold off. Some of them died there, but some, including Max Ulfelder, were released from captivity the following year. He went to India for the duration of the war and eventually returned to Munich after the war had ended. I think he was hoping to rebuild his department store, but in fact it just proved impossible and in the end he sold the building to the Munich City Council and they used it to build the museum, so the Münchner Stadtmuseum, the Munich City Museum is actually in the building that was this famous department store, wrecked because it was owned by Jews. In order to really understand the story of what happened to the Jews in Munich, I think you probably have to visit the Dachau concentration camp, which is a few miles outside the city centre. It was the Nazis' first concentration camp, built in 1933, originally to house political prisoners. Some of the camps in other parts of Germany were designed specifically to be extermination camps. That wasn't actually true of Dachau, although it is thought that of the 200,000 people who passed through its doors, at least 43,000 were killed or died because of the terrible conditions. The site is known today as the Karzett Gedenkstätte, so the concentration camp memorial site. The site itself is the museum, really, but there are displays, there are photographs. There's a lot of information about what was done there. There are lists of the kind of people who were incarcerated there, which would include Jews, homosexuals, Jehovah's Witnesses, Polish people, Roma, and what the Nazis called other asoziale, so asocial people, people who didn't fit in. Not to mention other so-called degenerates, just people who spoke out against the Nazis. Be more about that in the next episode. As you pass through the gates to get into the camp, you see the slogan in wrought iron, Arbeit macht frei, work makes you free. And in the square, in the middle of the camp, the place which used to be used for roll calls, there's an international memorial with an inscription written in five different languages, English, French, Yiddish, German and Russian, and it reads, Never again, nie wieder.
A second work of fiction which I can very much recommend if you want to understand more about the life of the Jews during this period in Munich is a book called The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak. It's set in 1939 in a little town called Molching, which is just outside Munich, and the main character is Liesel Memminger. She's only nine, and she's been fostered by Hans and Rosa Hubermann because she's lost her parents. They've disappeared in a concentration camp. It's a very strange book in that the narrator is death itself, but it gives, through the eyes of a child, a view of some of the things that happened. And the fiction is all intertwined with little moments from history. So, for example, here's a quote from Felia early on in the book when Liesel is watching German soldiers marching through her town. Quote, The brown-shirted extremist members of the NSDAP, otherwise known as the Nazi Party, had marched down Munich Street, their banners worn proudly, their faces held high, as if on sticks. Their voices were full of song, culminating in a roaring rendition of Deutschland über alles. And a little later on, there's a description of how Hans, Liesel's stepfather, sees some German soldiers destroying a Jewish shop. So this is how this is described. At the Nazi headquarters on Munich Street, he witnessed four men throw several bricks into a clothing store named Kleinmanns. It was one of the Jewish shops that was still in operation in Molching. Inside, a small man was stuttering about, crushing the broken glass beneath his feet as he cleaned up. A star the colour of mustard was smeared to the door. In sloppy lettering, the words Jewish filth were spilling over at their edges. And the author goes on to describe how Hans came back the next day and helped the shop owner repaint the door, and then says rather chillingly, quote, It was his second mistake. There's a passage much later on in the book in a chapter called The Long Walk to Dachau in which it's described how Jewish prisoners were being marched through the town. And this is what it says about that. Quote, when they arrived in full, the noise of their feet throbbed amongst the road. Their eyes were enormous in their starving skulls and the dirt, the dirt was moulded to them. Their legs staggered as they were pushed by soldiers' hands, a few wayward steps of forced running before the slow return to a malnourished walk. And then following on from that, a bit later in the chapter, there's a description of Liesel, who's only nine, remember, watching this. Quote, As she watched, Liesel was certain that these were the poorest souls alive. That's what she wrote about them. Their gaunt faces were stretched with torture. Hunger ate them as they continued forward, some of them watching the ground to avoid the people on the side of the road. Some looked appealingly at those who had come to observe their humiliation, this prelude to their deaths. Others pleaded for someone, anyone, to step forward and catch them in their arms. No one did. There are two other places in Munich today where you can see reminders of all of this. One is on Lehnbachplatz, close to the site of one of the original synagogues which was destroyed by the Nazis in 1938. Today there you'll find an enormous basalt block in commemoration of the building which is not there anymore, with inscriptions in German and in Yiddish. And then on Jakobsplatz is today's new synagogue. It dates from 2006. Here's what is written about it in the book 111 Places in Munich, which you really shouldn't miss. Quote, the new synagogue on Jakobsplatz bears the name of the old destroyed synagogue, which in translation means the Tent of Jacob. The centre of new Jewish life in Munich is a light-flooded glass cube on a massive base of travertine stone, known as Jerusalem stone. The synagogue is part of the Jewish centre that includes the community centre, 
and the Jewish Museum, which shows the story of Judaism in Munich. The Passage of Remembrance, an underground passageway between the synagogue and the community centre, commemorates the Holocaust and the over 4,000 Munich Jews who were murdered by the Nazis. Of course, we must also remember that there were hundreds of thousands of ordinary citizens in wartime Munich who didn't support the Nazis and who saw their city more or less destroyed. There were 70 air raids on Munich during the war, partly because it was known as the Hauptstadt der Bewegung, so the centre of the National Socialist Movement, and also because it was known that there were armaments factories nearby. It's estimated that by the end of the war, half the city lay in ruins and 300,000 people had become homeless. This nightmare came to an end on the 30th of April 1945, when the Americans finally entered Munich, and from then on the clear-up and the rebuilding could begin. Right from the beginning, the new city council voted to have the city reconstructed as far as possible as it had been, in its old form. And so for that reason, when you're in Munich today, it does look really not all that different from a century ago. We mustn't forget that much of it has been destroyed and rebuilt. It's estimated that in the clear-up between 1945 and the early 1950s, about 5 million cubic metres of rubble had to be cleared from the streets. And this led to another phenomenon which has often been forgotten. It's well known in Germany, but the rest of us don't know much about it. And that was the work of the people known as the rubble women, the Trümmerfrauen in German. Of course, so many of Munich's male population had either been killed or were still in captivity. And it fell to the women to start the clear-up. The Trümmerfrauen were aged between 15 and 65, and it became their task to work in all the damaged streets, salvaging bricks, collecting timber, finding girders that could be reused, and gradually, gradually clearing the debris. Early on, they weren't paid. Gradually, people began to give them handfuls of potatoes in recompense, and eventually they received food rations. It took years, but slowly, slowly, they did have an impact, and gradually this massive amount of rubble was cleared. Of course, the next problem was what to do with it. And the solution to that became the creation of something called Trümmerberge, or rubble mountains. So the rubble was collected in certain places, built up into a huge mountain, which was then grassed over and landscaped. If you know where to look, you can still see some of these today. The largest one is in the Olympia Park, an area of land covering 87 hectares, which has been landscaped with paths and woodland and grassy slopes and from the top of which you get the most magnificent view of the Olympic site. In a different location, known as the Luitpold Hügel, Hügel is a hill, so it's the hill named after Luitpold, who was the Prince Regent, after the death of Ludwig II and during the reign of his brother Otto, who was deemed not really fit to rule by himself. This Trümmerberg is 37 metres high, a hill with a series of paths winding through trees to get up to the top, where you'll find a cross with an inscription on it calling anyone who passes by to remember the terrible things that happened in Munich during the 1940s. The inscription reads, Pray and remember those who died under the mountains of rubble. A fitting way to make the point that, although all of this is now long in the past, it really mustn't ever be forgotten. So, so much for wartime Munich. I would like to devote just one more episode to that period of history because I think it would be wrong to move on just having talked so much about the Nazis and the victims 
particularly the Jews, without giving some mention to the small number of very brave people who spent wartime Munich trying to stand up to Hitler, speaking against him, trying to turn the tide, and in many cases paying for their bravery with their lives. So that'll be the content of the next episode, and then after that we'll leave wartime Munich behind and move on to other things. So I hope you found today's episode interesting. I hope very much that you'll join me next week to hear the stories of Rupert Meyer and Hans and Sophie Scholl and one or two others and find out where in Munich today you can still find traces of their story. But for the moment, it just remains for me to thank you very much for listening, vielen Dank, and to wish you goodbye. Auf Wiederhören. <laughs>